You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. All right, let's pray and get into 2 Kings chapter 13. Lord, thank you for your word. And again, Lord, as we, as we get a glimpse of who you are, as we get a taste of your goodness by hearing about you and the, your work in the world in the past, Lord, through your word, as we get a glimpse, as we get a taste, Lord, would you build in with us, or build inside of us a hunger and a desire for your kingdom, a desire for you, God. And we ask that you would do a deep work in our hearts as we study your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So back when my son uh, was five years old, I remember one night I went to check on him in bed before I went to bed, you know, just to see, make sure everything was okay. And I went into his room, and he was lying in his bed, but he was wide awake. And I asked him, hey, what's going on? You know, why are you awake? Why can't you sleep? And he said, you know, I've just, I've got a lot on my mind. And he said, I'm just thinking about life. And I said, okay, well, what are you thinking about? Like, maybe I can, maybe I can help give some fatherly wisdom. He said, Dad, do you think that I'll ever be able to make $10,000? And I said, you know, son, I'm pretty confident that at some point in your life, you are going to be able to make $10,000. So you just relax your mind, and you go to sleep. Everything's going to be just fine. You see, as a five-year-old, like $10,000, that was the biggest amount of money that he could imagine. Like, he couldn't get beyond that. I mean, what is even beyond $10,000, right? That's the most he could possibly imagine. Little did he realize or know that actually minimum wage workers here in the United States make much more than $10,000 a year. In fact, the average American worker in their lifetime will make between two and $3 million. But at five years old, his biggest goal, his aspiration, if he could have any wish, it would be that someday he could make just $10,000. And I think that in the same way, many times we often set our sights way too low. We set our sights way too low. I think we aim for and settle for so much less than what God offers us and what God wants to give us, right? And so what we need is to have our eyes opened, and we need to have our hearts stirred to do two things. First, to see, but also to desire all that God has for us, to see all that God has for us, but not just to see it and know about it, but to actually desire it. We need God to open our, open our eyes and to stir our hearts for that. Hey, the title of today's message is Developing a Heart for God. And here's what we're going to see in our study today. Here's our takeaway truth, our sentence for you to write down, memorize, take with you as you go and have it rattle around in your brain throughout this week. Uh, so I encourage you to take a picture, write it down. Here's our sentence for this week. Developing a heart for God means learning to share God's desires and to desire God himself. So developing a heart for God means learning to share God's desires and to desire God himself. That's going to function as our outline also for how we break down and study this passage. So let's take that sentence and break it down as we study our text. Let's look at the first part. Developing a heart for God means learning to share God's desires. In 2 Kings chapter 13, it begins with these words. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. 
Now, again, it's been a while since we've been in First and Second Kings, so let me just bring you back up to speed. The nation of Israel at this time was divided into two kingdoms. The kingdom in the north, which was called Israel, and the kingdom in the south was called Judah. Now, here in the books of First and Second Kings, it kind of bounces back and forth between talking about the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. Well, here in chapter 13, understand, we're talking only about events and kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel was formed because of a rebellion that was led by a man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam, back in the day, after Solomon's death, Jeroboam led 10 northern tribes of Israel to break away from the government that was based in Jerusalem, and they formed a new kingdom in the north. Now, that might sound like a bad thing, but it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, God spoke to Jeroboam when he founded this new kingdom, and God made him a promise. He said, Jeroboam, if you and the kings who come after you over this new kingdom, if you will take my hand and walk with me, I will bless you beyond your wildest dreams, beyond anything you can even possibly imagine. But here's what's interesting. Jeroboam did not take God up on that offer. It's an incredible offer, isn't it? I will bless you more than you can even imagine. I will do more for you than you could ever ask. And Jeroboam said, nah, I'm going to do my own thing anyway. He didn't take God up on his offer. Instead, Jeroboam welcomed idolatry and paganism into Israel. And not only that, but he forbade the people of the northern kingdom from traveling down to Jerusalem and worshiping at the temple there in Jerusalem. And he did that for political reasons. But understand, it had implications for the people of Israel. And, and rather than taking God up on his offer and experiencing the blessings that God wanted to give them, that God would have given them, over and over the northern kingdom of Israel, they find themselves at odds with God, constantly fighting with and wrestling against God. But eventually, of course, Jeroboam died and, and another king took his place. And we've seen just a succession of kings over the northern kingdom of Israel. And here's what happens, like we, like we read here at chapter 13. With every new king that comes over Israel, there's this glimmer of hope, right? There's this thing. Will this man be the one? Will this king be the one who will undo what Jeroboam had did, who won't walk in Jeroboam's ways and follow in his footsteps, who will actually seek the Lord and get rid of the idolatry and will come back to the Lord and call the people back to God? But with each new king of Israel, unfortunately, without exception, we read the following phrase that we read in verse 2. But he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he followed in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. You know, on the one hand, it's kind of crazy to consider the impact of Jeroboam's legacy on the northern kingdom of Israel. Jeroboam left behind a legacy of kind of thumbing his nose at God and saying, I don't care what you say, and I don't care about your offer to bless me. I'm going to do my own thing. And he welcomed in paganism and idolatry. He left behind this legacy. And those who came after him, they followed in his footsteps. It almost makes you wonder how different things might have been if Jeroboam had walked with the Lord instead, if Jeroboam had left behind a godly legacy 
would these people who came after him, would they have walked in those footsteps instead? I kind of think of it like this. If you've ever walked through deep snow or deepish snow, right? Maybe across your yard or down a trail or in a park, right? It's much easier to walk in somebody else's footsteps. Somebody else who's already gone before you and made a way through the snow. It's much easier to just walk in their footsteps than it is to go off of that path and, and pave your own way and trod your own steps through the snow. And so it's worth asking the question, right? This is the power of legacy. You're creating a path that other people walk in. And it's worth asking a question. What kind of legacy do you want to live be, leave behind? What kind of impact do you want your life to have on those who will follow in your footsteps? Well, what's so crazy, again, is that God had promised the kings of Israel this incredible promise. If you will take my hand and walk with me, then I will bless you beyond your wildest dreams. That was his offer. And yet, none of them took him up on it. Not a single one of them took him up on it. And listen, this is not just something that the kings of Israel did. Jesus said that this is something that people do in relation to God all the time, even today. Listen, listen to this parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 22. Here's what he said. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a great wedding feast for his son, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off one to his farm, another to his business. Imagine being invited to the royal wedding. Right? The king has prepared a feast. All the arrangements have been made. All you have to do is show up. But the people who are invited... They can't be bothered to show up. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that, that is the way that many of us relate to God. God is offering us something so great, something so incredibly wonderful, and yet we settle for so much less. We settle for so much less. C.S. Lewis talked about this tendency we have to settle for so much less than God wants to give us or God would give us. He, he summarized it in this quote. He said this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Friends, listen. God's plans for your life, his desires for your life, they're exceedingly good. And so often, though, what we do is we settle for so much less. We settle for so much less than what God offers us and what God wants to give us. And we see great examples of that here in 2 Kings chapter 13. First, we read in verse 3 that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Why? Because of this idolatry and this paganism that was perpetuated in the kingdom. And so it says that he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Verse 4. But then Jehoahaz. Now, wait, wait. Who's Jehoahaz? He's the king of Israel. A godless king, by the way. It says, Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. The Lord listened to him. Listen, maybe you've heard the saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. It's the idea that when you're faced with mortality, when you're faced with great danger and great difficulty, suddenly even the most ungodly people start seeking God. 
And we see that here with King Jehoahaz, right? He's, he's a very ungodly man. He doesn't love God. He doesn't desire the things that God desires, right? Getting back to our sentence that we, we mentioned earlier. And yet here he is, and he's praying. He's praying. Why? Because he's facing huge adversity and huge difficulty. And it says that he sought the favor of the Lord. Another translation puts it this way. He pleaded with the Lord. And here's what's even more surprising. Not only did this ungodly man pray to God, but here's what it says. It says that the Lord listened to his prayer and answered his prayer. That's incredible. You know, one of the things that people often ask is, does God listen to the prayers of people who are not living in a right way, right? Like, like let's say there's some sin in your life, some, something ongoing that's not good in God's eyes. Will God listen to your prayers if there's sin in your life? If there's something in your life that isn't right before God, does that mean that God won't listen when you pray or that he won't answer your prayers? Well, listen, look at this. This is an example of a man who absolutely was living in, in total rebellion against God. And yet in this moment where he humbles himself before God and he prays to God, he admits his own need and his own inability and, and he casts himself upon God's mercy. He acknowledges God's greatness. Not only did God listen to his prayer, but God answered his prayer. I'll tell you this. There are a lot of things in this world that are out side of your control. There are a lot of things that you don't have any control over, and there are a lot of things that are way beyond your ability as well as mine. But here's what we have in prayer. God is offering you this gift. He says, you have direct access to me, the one who is in control of all things, the one for whom nothing is beyond his ability, the one for whom nothing is impossible. And it gets us back to this idea, doesn't it, that so often we settle for so much less than what God offers us and what God would give us if we would reach out and take it. If God listened, by the way, to the prayers of somebody like Jehoahaz, an unrighteous king, then don't you think that God will listen to your prayers if you call out to him as well? We have direct access to the one who is in control, the one who can do all things. Well, look at what it says in verse 5. Therefore, the Lord gave Israel a savior so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Well, that's great, except if you read the next few verses. Because sadly, in verses 6 through 10, we read that after God saved Israel from this crisis and from this attack with Syria, right? When, when this crisis was averted, when it was over because God saved them, we read that Jehoahaz went right back to his old ways. And isn't this a tendency that we see in so many of our own lives, right? That when we have a great need, it brings us to our knees. We turn to God. We start seeking him again. And then when the crisis is over, when things get comfortable again, it's very easy to just drift right back into our old ways. Jehoahaz found God to be useful in the moment. Jehoahaz found God to be useful in the moment. He wanted what God could do for him in this time of great need. But we see here that he didn't truly share God's desires, nor did he desire God himself. Again, that brings us back to our sentence, right? To have a heart for God. De you know, developing a heart for God is about learning to share God's desires. So we see here with Jehoahaz that at the end of the day, he didn't desire what God desired, and he didn't have a heart for God. He didn't desire God himself. He just viewed God as useful to him in the moment. Well, it says in verse 10 that we read that Jehoahaz, he had a son. His son's name was Joash. And when Jehoahaz died, Joash became king in his place. 
We get a summary of Joash, or Joash's life there from verses 11 to 13. But come with me down to verse 14. It tells us about an instance or a story from Joash's life. It says in verse 14, Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, went down to him. Again, bringing you back up to speed with First and Second Kings, there were two great wonder-working prophets, is what we call them. The wonder-working prophets, as, as opposed to the writing prophets. The wonder-working prophets of Israel were Elijah, with a J, we read about him in First Kings, and Elisha, who we've read about here in Second Kings, from the beginning of Second Kings all the way up until right here. In spite of all of the idolatry, in spite of all the wickedness that existed in the northern kingdom of Israel, Elisha stood as a shining light, a faithful witness to the Lord over all these years. Kings came and went, but Elisha stood strong as the prophet, as the representative of the Lord there in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so when King Joash found out that Elisha was dying, he went down to see him. And it says there that Joash wept before him. And it says that he cried and he said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. That's, it sounds like kind of a weird thing to say to somebody who's dying, right? Oh, you're dying. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Like, what does that mean? Well, actually, it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. This is actually a phrase that's used several times in the Bible. And here's what it means. When you say this to somebody, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, what he's saying is he's referring to the strength of the nation. And what he's saying is, Elisha, you are the true strength of the nation. Think about it. In ancient cultures, chariots and horsemen, these were the main instruments of military warfare and military power. So the strength of a nation would be measured by the number of chariots and the number of horsemen that the military had. But what Joash is saying instead is he's saying, Elisha, it's not the military of Israel that's our true strength. It is you. It is you, Elisha. You represent the true strength. You are the reason for the protection of Israel. You're the reason why we're okay. And the reason, understand, Joash is saying this because he's scared. He's scared about the future. Think about it. He's worried. How can we ever go on? If Elisha is the strength and the protection of Israel, then what will happen to us if he's gone? Well, how will we move forward as a nation? And so in this scared state, in this frightened state, worried about the future and the loss of Elisha, look at what Elisha does and says to Joash. It says in verse 15, Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hand. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end to them. Now I want you to just picture this scene in your mind so you can really get a grasp on what's happening. Here's this old man. He's sick. He's dying. These are his last days on earth. And this young king comes down to visit him. And the old man, the young king's worried. What's going to happen when the prophet is gone? The prophet tells him, take a bow and arrow, open the window. And I want you to pull back the bow and aim the arrow out the window. Now what's going on here? 
Well, well, look at what happens next. The old prophet, he gets up, this sick old man, he gets up and he takes his hands and he places them on the hands of the young king as he's holding the bow and arrow. You can imagine this. If, you, if you've ever tried to teach a child how to, how to do something, like how to write their name, what do you do? You put your hand on their hand and you hold their hand and you help them to do it, right? You, you might be teaching them to cast a fishing pole. You put your hands on their hands and you do it together with them. Teaching them to shoot a bow and arrow, for example. You, you'd put your hands on theirs and you pull it back together with them. That's the same idea here. The old prophet is putting his hands on the young man's hands and he's saying, let's take this shot together. I'm here. I'm with you. I will guide you. I will assist you. Let's do this together. So he's holding his hands as they shoot this arrow out of the window to the east. Now what is to the east? What's to the east is Syria. In verse 17, Elisha made it very clear. He explained to Joash very clearly, this shooting of the arrow towards Syria, this is a symbolic act which represents attacking Syria militarily. And actually, it's interesting, you read up on this, this was an ancient custom that was sometimes done. When a king wanted to declare war, one of the things he would do is symbolically, he would shoot an arrow towards that nation as a way of declaring war and saying, I'm going to fight against this nation. And so as he tells him, okay, I want you to declare war against Syria, and he tells him, as you shoot this arrow, God is going to give you the victory. This arrow represents a strike against Syria by which God is going to deliver Israel. And Elisha says, this is the arrow of victory over Syria. This is what you need to do, Joash. God will be with you. You just shoot these arrows. You attack Syria. Well, with that in mind, look at what happens now in verse 18. He says this. Elisha says to him again, now take the arrows. And Joash took them and he said to the king of Israel, now strike the ground with them. Now, just pause there for a second. When we read that in English, what does it sound like? It sounds like he's telling him, grab a handful of arrows and kind of tap them on the ground, right? Smack the arrows on the ground, the handful of arrows. Well, if, that's not exactly what it means. Actually, it's not at all what it means. If you read it in Hebrew, what, what it's meaning is this. Strike the ground means that just as he struck the ground with an arrow before by shooting it into the air so it didn't hit any other object, but it just fell to the ground, that's what he's telling him to do. So just as he already shot one arrow out the window, to strike the ground doesn't mean to tap the arrows on the ground. It means shoot more arrows out the window towards the east so that they fly in the air and then strike the ground. They don't strike anything else. And so the idea here is shoot more arrows. So just as Joash already shot one arrow with Elisha holding his hands, now Elisha's telling him, okay, this time I'm not going to hold your hands. I want you to just shoot the arrows on your own. Understand, this is a very poignant picture. Elisha is telling him, until now, I have been with you. I have lent you my strength, but soon I will be departing from this world, and you are going to be on your own. I won't be here to help you, and you are going to have to attack Syria on your own without me. But here's the promise. Just as that arrow that we shot together was the arrow of God's victory over Syria, God will continue to give you victory over Syria if you will continue to keep shooting these arrows and attacking them. As many shots as you take, in other words, that's how much victory God will give you. As many shots as you want, you will be successful. 
So the question is, Joash, how much victory do you want? God will give you as much victory as you want. So go ahead, Joash. Let's do this symbolically. I want you to show me. Shoot the arrows out the window. And as many arrows as you shoot, that's how many victories God will give you over Syria. And so Joash, it says there, he reaches into his quiver. He pulls out one arrow, and, and on his own, he shoots that arrow towards Syria. It represents a, an attack, a strike against Syria. Okay, cool. So God's going to give him victory in at least one battle. What does Joash do? He grabs another arrow, shoots that arrow. Now it's two, two victories God is promising he will have over Syria. What does he do? He grabs a third arrow, and he shoots that three times now. God is going to give him three victories. But then... He stops. We don't know why he stops. He just stops shooting. We, we do know one thing. We know that the reason he stopped shooting was not because he ran out of arrows. And how do we know that? Well, because look at what it says there in verse 18. Then the man of God was angry with him. Why is Elisha angry? He says, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end to it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Now, listen, you may be tempted to feel bad for Joash at this moment and say, poor Joash, right? He, he probably has no idea what's going on here. It's this weird instruction to take some arrows and shoot them out a window, right? Like, how does he know that he should have shot more times? And he probably thought three was good enough, right? Now he's being punished because three wasn't good enough? I mean, it seems so arbitrary, and he doesn't know the rules. Poor guy. But listen, Joash understood exactly what was going on here. Elisha had made this incredibly clear, and Elisha had made him an incredible offer, an incredible promise from God. It was this, Joash, you can have as much victory over the Syrians as you want. Go ahead, as many arrows as you are willing to shoot, that is how many, that's how many victories God will give you over Syria. I mean, think about it like in these terms. It'd be like if I told you, hey, here's a button. As many times you push this button, you'll get $100 every time you push it. But once you stop, then it's over. And you're like, well, cool, I, I'd love to have $100. And so you push the button, and then you push the button again, then you push the button again, and then you're like, all right, that'll do, right? $300 is a lot of money. And I say, with $300, you could have had so much more, right? Just keep pushing the button. Keep pushing the button until it breaks. Push the button until your finger breaks. I don't care. Like, keep pushing the button until it doesn't give you any more dollars, right? Like, how much do you want? Why would you even stop? This doesn't make any sense. It's the same idea here in this story. God is offering Joash as much victory as he wants. How much do you want, Joash? What Joash should have done, he should have shot all the arrows in his quiver until there were no more arrows left. And when they ran out, he should have run out and got some more arrows, gone to the arrow store and bought as many arrows as they had in stock. He should have gone next door, knocked on the neighbor's door. Hey, you got any arrows? You got anything that I could even use as an arrow? A spoon? I'll throw it. I don't care, right? Like, just keep shooting arrows. Call the arrow delivery service. I don't know, whatever you got to do. Get as many arrows as you possibly can until Elisha says, hey, bro, just chill out. That was enough arrows. But instead... He's like phlegmatic, right? He takes three arrows, shoots them, and he's like, man, good enough. That'll do. And the reason Elisha is upset is because Joash is settling for less than what God would have given him, what, what God would have done for him. Joash is lacking in zeal, in passion, in desire. And God has called him to do something, right? He's given him a calling on his life. His calling is to lead and protect and deliver the people of Israel from their oppressors. But Joash, he's only concerned with doing the bare minimum. Three, 
That's probably enough. I, I just want to do the minimum and get it done with. And as a result, he ends up getting less than what God would have given him. And friends, I can't help but think that there are so many parallels here for our lives and our lives when it relates to God and the things of God. Here's the thing, guys. Think about this. If you are a believer, you have unfiltered, unlimited access to God. You, have, you can have as much of God as you want. Do you know that? You can have as much of God as you want. You can have as rich of a relationship with God as you want to have. That is available to you. It is yours for the taking. You know what else? You can experience victory and freedom in your life to whatever degree you're willing to take it. It's offered to you in Christ. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us that God has given us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All the joy, all the peace, all the hope in the world. It's like Christmas presents under the tree with your name written on them, and all you got to do is go and take them. And the question is, will you take hold of them? You know, I host a call-in radio show every Friday, as I mentioned earlier, and I uh, get a lot of calls in which people ask me these questions. Like, the questions I ask me is stuff like, so is it technically a sin if I do this, right? Like, like uh, they want to know, like, what exactly constitutes adultery, <laughs> right? Like, so technically, what is lying? Like, okay, the word cocaine is not mentioned in the Bible, right? Like, you get these kind of questions, right? Or, or they'll ask me questions like, where in the Bible does it say that I have to do this, right? Like, be basic ones like, where in the Bible does it say that I have to be baptized, or, or where in the Bible does it say that I have to go to church or, or give a cent to the work of God? Like, show me in the Bible where it says that I have to do that. And let's have an argument about it so I can tell you it doesn't really mean that, right? Like, uh, oftentimes, and what I'll tell these people is, you know, friend, you are asking the wrong question. You are asking the absolute wrong question because essentially what you're saying is this. You know, what is the bare minimum that I can get away with without God being upset with me? Like, I just want to squeeze in the door, right? Like, what's the bare minimum that I can possibly do? Because that's what I want to do, the bare minimum. Or when someone asks, like, if something is technically a sin, right, what they're really saying is, like, I want to get as close to the fire as I possibly can without, like, without dying, right? Like, it's okay if my hair gets singed off and my clothes catch on fire. I just don't want to burn to death, right? Like, how close can I possibly get? And I'll tell them, I, I don't even want to answer this question because it's the wrong question to begin with. Rather than asking, you know, what is the most I can possibly do and get away with it? Or what's the absolute minimum that God says I have to do? Look at what Jesus said instead compared to that. Jesus said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Think about how you love yourself, okay? Do, do, you, do you calculate? What is the absolute minimum I have to do to, you know, not die, right? That's not how we love ourselves at all, right? How do we love ourselves? We, we always tell ourselves, I need to treat myself, right? And in other words, that's how we're called to love our neighbors. How much more so how we're called to love God, not with the minimum, but with all that we are. And listen, I know none of us live up to that. We all fall short. But when it comes to loving others and loving God, this is the target. This is the goal. This is the standard. And like Joash, 
What do we do? We often settle for so much less than what God offers us and what God would give us. And what it comes down to, as we see here with Joash, is an issue of desire. And so the big question is, how do we grow in our desires for the right things? How do we learn, as we say in that sentence, how do we learn to share God's desires? Well, the psalmist puts it this way. I find this interesting. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. In other words, how do you develop a hunger for God? Here's how. One taste at a time. One taste at a time builds a hunger over time. The apostle John, he put it this way. He said, we love because God first loved us. So how do we develop love for God and love for others? It's by experiencing, tasting, seeing God's goodness. That's why we open up his word in order to see his glory, to hear his voice. Rather than feeding our flesh, we feed the spirit. We pray, we worship, we seek him. And with every taste, every glimpse, it builds our hunger. It develops that desire for the things that God desires and for God himself. Jesus also said this. He said, Whatever, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He encouraged us, store up treasures, not on earth, but in heaven. You know, the thing about your treasure, what are the things that you treasure? Well, we tend to treasure our time, our resources, our energy. And the idea is this. If you will invest those things time, energy, resources into God's kingdom, into God's work, then your heart will be bound to those things. You will desire those things. You know why? Think about it like this. I I used to have the stock app on my phone, and I would always just delete it. What do I need that for? But then I bought some stock. And you know what I do every day? I check that app. I'm like, oh, did I make any money today? Right? It's this idea that the the mission trip that you funded, you're going to care a lot more about than the one where you just heard that they were going and you told them, hey, go for it right? In other words, when you're, when you're invested in it, your heart is bound up in it. So one of the easiest ways and simplest ways to direct and develop our heart and our desires and learn the things that God loves is by investing our earthly resources into the work in the kingdom of God. Here's why. Because to be a follower of Jesus isn't about just getting the right information into our heads. Let me say that again. Being a follower of Jesus isn't just about getting the right information into your heads. Listen, if that's all it was, the Pharisees would have been awesome because they had all the right information in their heads. What was the issue with the Pharisees? It was their hearts. Look at Joash here. He does technically do what Elisha told him to do, didn't he? And yet what he lacked was the heart. It's not just about the right information in our heads. It's about the right heart, a heart for God, the right desires. So how do we shape our desires to desire the things that God desires? And here's how we do it, as we see here. Through intentional actions. We sometimes call these spiritual disciplines. Here at the beginning of the year, I always want to encourage you guys to do these things. Spiritual disciplines, you know what they do? They, they're not just going through the motions. They're going through the right motions. The motions that train your heart and train your mind, build within you a hunger and a desire for the Lord. Well, that brings us to the, the end of our sentence and also the end of our study today. So let's look at this second and last part of our sentence. Developing a heart for God means learning to share God's desires and to desire God himself. Look at verse 20. It says, so Elisha died and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood to his feet. 
This last miracle that Elisha does, it happens after he's already dead. I find it so interesting that Elisha died at all and was buried because remember, Elijah, who came before Elisha, he never tasted death. He was carried up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And yet Elisha, who in many ways actually surpassed Elijah, his mentor, his death is unceremonious. He, he dies by getting sick, and he dies, and they bury him. Elisha performed 16 great miracles that are recorded here in 2 Kings. That's twice as many as Elijah. Twice as many, including, many of these miracles included healing the sick and even raising the dead. And yet here at the end of Elisha's life, there's no miracle. There's no healing. He gets sick, he dies, and he's buried. But what you need to understand is that Elisha's death was not a tragedy, not by any means. Because Elisha had the hope, which all of the Old Testament saints had, which was this, that one day God would resurrect them, not just temporarily, like, like the guy who touched Elisha's bones and came back to life for a time. No, God would resurrect them, bring them to life forever, eternally. And Elisha's hope was this hope of eternal life in the presence of God. This God whom he had served for his entire life. When he departed from this world, Elisha walked right into the embrace of that God, which was something infinitely better. During his lifetime, Elijah, or Elisha saw God do incredible things. And yet none of those incredible things that God did could ever compare to seeing God himself. To have a heart for God, it means desiring not only what God can give you, it means desiring God himself. Listen, many people consider God useful to them. Like Jehoah has. Remember, he considered God useful to him when he had a problem, when he needed something. He considered God useful to him. But it's a different thing altogether to not just consider God useful to you, but to seek God because you consider him beautiful to you. Not just for what he can give you, but for who he is. Elisha performed a lot of miracles, but you know what? Later on, many years later, another prophet came on the scene who performed even more miracles than Elisha ever did. That man's name was Jesus. And just as through Elisha's death, another person came back to life, through the death of Jesus, many more have been brought from ultimate death into everlasting life. As great as Elisha was, he was only at best a foreshadowing, a taste, a preview of the one who was to come, Jesus Christ, and what he would do. And the most important step in developing a heart for God is for you to receive a new heart. The way that that happens is when you put your hope and your trust in Jesus and his death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection from the grave to eternal life, not only do you receive forgiveness and eternal life, but you receive a new heart a heart that is inclined towards God, a heart that is soft rather than hard, a heart that is tender to God's touch and desires the things that God desires, and ultimately a heart that desires Him. Those desires can be developed, they can be shaped, they can be cultivated, but they begin by you receiving a new heart. How do you do that? Well, how do you receive that kind of heart? Well, do you remember Jehoahaz from earlier in our story? That ungodly man who prayed and God heard his prayer? Well, listen, it's good news that God hears the prayers of the ungodly because you know what that means? It means that he's willing to hear your prayers and my prayers as well. All of us have sinned and fallen short, but if you will pray and you will ask God to remove your heart of stone and replace it with a new heart, a heart of flesh that desires what he desires and desires him, 
He will do it. That is his promise to you. And so may I encourage you today, may we not be those who ever settle for less than what God wants to give us. May we be those who can keep on and continue shooting the arrows in faith until we've got no more arrows left to shoot because we want to take hold of all that God has for us and all that he offers us, both now and for eternity. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.